Welcome to the Andor Podcast, where the lorehounds, your guides to a galaxy far, far away. I'm David. I'm John, and this is our podcast for the season finale of Star Wars Andor, Season 1, Episode 12, Rick's Road on Disney+. In this episode, we'll be talking about our overall thoughts on the episode and ticking off some open questions before moving into a breakdown of the episode. After that, we'll consider some listener feedback. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send feedback to andor at thelorehounds.com and we'll get to those questions in our season wrap-up podcast. I have a brief announcement. Definitely get your questions in quickly because I'm having a child this week. So we're recording the season wrap-up podcast the day that this current podcast comes out. So we might not get to it. If it's a, if it's a big overarching question, maybe we will talk about it on the Tales of the Jedi podcast in December. Also, even though Andor is over, you can keep talking all things Star Wars on the Bald Move Discord server. Link is in the description below and at baldmove.com. We have a dedicated Star Wars channel, and each show and episode have their own moderated threads, so you can jump in at any time without worrying about spoilers. If you're enjoying our coverage of Andor or any of our other shows, and you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. For just $3 a month, you can subscribe today and get early and ad-free access to every episode of all our podcasts. Another quick ask. If you have a moment, please rate and review our podcast. David, we've been having some lovely reviews lately, and it's it's nice to see that people are picking up what we're putting down, you know? Ratings and reviews help other people find this podcast, which helps us make more podcasts. David, before we get into Andor, we have some programming notes to talk about. First up, we're four episodes into The White Lotus, and we're really enjoying covering the latest creation from Mike White over on HBO. Look for our episode five podcast next Wednesday. Also, the first episode of our new series, Silmarillion Stories, just dropped, and we get into the details of Tolkien's creation myth, the Ainulindalei. That's in our feed now, and in December, we're going to be covering the Valenquenta. Over on Bald Move, The Walking Dead is finally over. Jim and Aaron put a bullet in the brain of this series after 12 years of coverage. Check out their season wrap podcast on Tuesday. Speaking of season wrap-up podcasts, we have one of our own for Andor. We expect that episode to drop next Saturday, December 3rd. So get, as John said, get your final takes in right away. For that episode, we have a special guest joining us. Maester Anthony from the Double Dragon and Electric Boogaloo podcasts, both on the Bald Move Network, are joining us to talk about Andor. He's been watching the episode and he has thoughts. Anthony is currently leading a book read-along on the Bukaloo podcast for A Clash of Kings, part of the A Song of Ice and Fire series. And Dave and I will be joining him on this podcast sometime in January. We'll join Anthony to dig into a chapter of the second book of George R. R. Martin's epic saga. We will keep you posted on that once we have a date. We'll have more programming notes at the end of this episode, so stay tuned for that. Okay, David, let's get into our overall thoughts on the season finale. What'd you think? Well, John, normally I like to take my written notes while I'm watching, while I'm doing my first watch of an episode. And in this episode, I just had to put my pencil down and just be with the episode. There was so much going on. Uh, Obviously, the edits were, I mean, this episode is really threaded. So everybody's in and around and on top of each other. It was really tough. But then, but doing that just like really let me be with the podcast. And I've seen it podcast that episode. And I've seen it twice now and um, three times, sorry, three times. And I think they stuck the landing. It's a really 
gorgeous piece of television. The lighting in this episode was phenomenal. All the Rembrandt lighting that they were doing and the rim lighting and the silhouettes and transitions from uh, dark to light, it was absolutely incredible. The music was just clutch. I mean, it was so in the background, driving the tension of the entire episode. Um, and I just really felt taken and moved by how they put the whole episode together, how they actually constructed everything. Also, the density of this episode, it's crazy, like trying to do the notes and the outline for this episode. When, when I look back, I'm like, my gosh, they accomplished a whole ton of stuff. So yeah, I'm, I'm pretty, I don't know, I think I'm still slightly in a state of shock. Uh, I don't know if it's the turkey and the, the big meal we had yesterday, or if it was just, you know, wrapping uh, 12 episodes of, I think, one of the best television shows ever. I don't know what's, uh, what's hitting me more. How about you? I loved this episode, and I think after seeing this episode, if this ended now, this would be certainly the best TV show they've ever made in the Star Wars universe. Mm -hmm. Neck and neck, too, with the original trilogy, mm -hmm. I think, in quality. Right. I think the dialogue certainly better than the original trilogy. Yeah. The story itself is just as captivating as the original trilogy. It, really, the, the only thing that the original trilogy has over it is the magic of being the first Star Wars we ever saw. Right. But really, this is the, the highest quality Star Wars I've ever seen made, including all the films. Yeah. And I, it's just, it just blew me away. Uh, the tension kept ramping up in a way that was, it felt different. Yeah. It felt unique from One Way Out. Mm -hmm. It didn't feel like a replay of that kind of tension, that kind of rhythm. No, yeah. Uh, and I think that's really challenging to do is to have, first of all, like four climaxes this season, <laughs> that just an incredible ac accomplishment. And not to be bored by the subsequent ones. Right, exactly. Is is uh, They did really top each one. And I don't even want to say top. They were just all different. Like, they all had a different emotional tone. Mm. And I thought that that was really perfect. So, really great capstone to the season. Um, I'm, I'm just so thrilled with the show. Yeah, yeah. Super glad we decided to cover it in full. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's been a workload for us, given that we're just rolling off Rings of Power. We had scheduled White Lotus. And then I was like, hey, let's do Andor. It looks kind of cool. And little did we know like how important this show was. So for all the effort that we've been putting into like making sure that we can do two podcasts a week because we don't do this full time, um, it's been a lot, but I think it's been worth it. Uh, I yeah. feel really good about the quality of the show and it's been a joy to podcast about. And um, yeah, I, I think I'm in total agreement with you. If you would have told me this was my favorite show of the year at the beginning of the year, I would have laughed in your face. <laughs> yes. And, and well, you should have been. Well, well, you should have laughed in my face. There was no reason to believe anything coming out of the mouse would be good mm -mm. with this. I mean, there was just no reason. None of the other shows. Mandalorian, I've heard, is pretty good. But eh, even okay. then, like people eh. say like Mandalorian is like a fun Saturday morning show. It's like a, it's almost like a Saturday morning cartoon as a live action show. I would agree say. with that. I would agree with that. Whereas this is like what I wanted out of like a drama. Yeah. Just compared to House of the Dragon and Rings of Power, I mean, Rings of Power, I've said my piece about it. It's it, it's fun, but it's not a high quality writing show. Right. And House of the Dragon is a, a show that's operating at a high level, but it just has such a different 
feel and there's just like this darkness to it and dreariness about it, mm-hmm. which, you know, it's about dour topics. It should have that, but it's, it right. fails to have that levity that I feel and or has found. Like, I feel like I have moments of lightness. <laughs> I feel like I have moments where I can just relax for a second yeah. in Andor. Right. And I just don't have that in House of a Dragon. So this was really just an excellent experience. And we have a clear protagonist. Right. Who we um we know where his story ends up. And so we are vested in a way to see his transformation from this pure hard-boiled survivalist type to a major force in the rebellion and in the fight against the empire. And so how we get from there to there, we have somebody that we can really hold on to and and I think in House of Dra- in House of the Dragon that writing is excellent and the way that they are creating the dramatic tension between all the players has been brilliant. But I don't feel like I have a single person that I can hold on to. Right. Like, there's a, a nice big wide cast, but like, who's my person? And uh, with Cassian, I feel like I can identify with him, even though we don't see him that much. But with House of the Dragon, there's so much going on. And like you say, it's so dour. I mean, like in this show, I think of the scene with Cyril and Sergeant Mott uh, riding on the space bus <laughs> and they trade oh, hats. So good. It was brilliant. It was so funny. And it was a great little moment of levity right before going into a very nail biting sequence. Right. And like you say, they're, they're able to leaven the, uh, the story with these little humorous moments that, um, make it a joy to watch. So there, there's some, other conversation uh, out there around Andor about like, oh, well, Cassian's not that interesting of a character, or this didn't feel like a season wrap. Say or- his name. <laughs> well, there's a couple of people, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to throw. No, stones. say his name. <laughs> no, Alan Seppenwall is out of his fucking mind. <laughs> uh, I even got into a little Twitter spat with, not spat, but like, <laughs> I traded a couple of Twitter uh, tweets with him. Because there was a bigger threat on Joanna's uh, conversation, and he was saying that, yeah, you right. know, he doesn't think that Cassian's an interesting character. Okay, fine. Like, you know, if, if you're not mo- moved by him, that's fine. But, like, on the critique of this show, if you're viewing this show like it's The Walking Dead, or it's Battlestar Galactica, or it's, you know, Reno 911, or what, I don't know, whatever show, you, you name a show that is uh, maybe B plus, A minus tier, you know, sort of in that upper echelon, but not quite fully. You cannot judge this show, I don't think, by those same criteria. This show does not take the cheap way out. There were so many options for them to take the cheap way in this final scene, especially around the funeral, and they didn't do it because they're following the motivations of the characters. They're not following the motivations of the script writer. So they're doing the work and they're doing something that I don't think we've ever seen before. I mean, maybe Breaking Bad comes close to this. Maybe maybe Better Call Saul comes close to this, where we see this arc of a character. I think that Breaking Bad has a more complicated character development, but uh, we, we might have to agree to disagree on that one. Well, but do you see what I'm talking about? Is this like the, the, the show, the, the writers are doing the work. The show is doing the work to 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 evolve the character and the plot in a in a way that isn't just for cheap entertainment. Right. And I will say on your comparison to Breaking Bad, 
when Walt is transforming, you can see from season one that the roots of who he becomes are there. Mm -hmm. And you can see the same thing with Cassian. Right. Exactly. And that's what I'm trying to point to is, is that there's this very subtle, deep character work that's being done that we don't see in most shows. Most shows are entertainment. Oh, you know, the tunnel under the, the HQ, oh, Marva's going to like plant a bomb and all this stuff is going to happen. But, you know, they use it in a different way. The fact that they bring all these major players to Ferex and only a few of them cross paths and there's not this great culmination. Like, again, they're, they're not playing to the cheap entertainment value that most television would have. And to me, that is the mark of something excellent. And to see Diego Luna's delivery of the Cassian Andor arc, knowing that we know where Cassian ends up, it is powerful, powerful stuff. It's subtle stuff. It's not in-your-face acting. This is a man who has to really come to grips with what it means to change his entire life from mere survival to one of going to, you know, to join the rebellion and to like end up doing really awful stuff in the sake of, you know, for the sake of, of uh, overthrowing the, the empire. And that is, they could do that really cheaply and easily, but they're not. And so every moment in the show is earned. They could have just been like, yeah, they killed Bix. And so now he's mad. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, man on fire stuff. Right. 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 And you know what? I saw something online that sort of described how I feel about the quality of the writing of the show and the quality of the approach is mm -hmm. every show lately is obsessed with subverting expectations, mm -hmm. but everything yeah. in this finale felt inevitable, mm. not just planned, not just, you know, natural. It felt inevitable. Right. That was the word this person used. I forgot who said it. Sorry. But when, when Brasso says, are you going to take on a whole garrison mm -hmm. or somebody says that? Cassian's like, yeah, I just fucking did that two episodes ago, buddy. Like, I, it just felt like, yeah, no, of course he can. Right. You know, it felt natural. It didn't feel like this superhero thing. This mm -hmm. is something that we've seen this person develop. Right. Really great episode. I think that uh, we should probably get into it soon. But I see in this outline here, you've got some follow-ups. Yeah, uh, we've been just tracking some of those uh, weird open questions uh, about different things that the show has put down, and some of them have been resolved, and some of them are still open. A couple of the open ones that we can close, I think Mon Mothma's daughter, like she was given weird vibes all season, and I think that was all to just sort of highlight her, her character so that when yeah. the meeting with Skulden's son happens and that whole presentation it means something. It's not just like, oh, the daughter. It's like, no, like something's been going on with her. And so I think that's paid off. So I think we can resolve that one now. Yeah, no, definitely. We're definitely able to resolve what they were making in the factory. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, do you yeah. think about this, John? Because there's been some back and forth about what people think about the post credit scene. No, I like it. I like it. You know what? I didn't need it, but I like it. Mm. Uh, I thought the visual of the Death Star in that sort of exploded view. It was very expanse, right? With the robots placing the pieces and then having the, 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 the central beam weapon of the Death Star sort of three-dimensionally exploded out. And visually, it was beautiful. I don't know. I know that there are some folks out there who are like, I wish I didn't know because that would have been kind of cool as well. And there's other people who are, you know, cashing in their internet points. I'm cool with it. I think it's nice little cherry on top. I don't know if I feel one way or the other about it. You've just reminded me that I'm 
here to redeem some internet points. Yes. <laughs> wow. There you go. I feel honored. Cash them in. Um, all right. So that one's resolved. Um, the vow. We still haven't found or heard anything more about the vow. And that vow thing was dropped at least three times in season one. So I feel like it's going to be something that ends up in season two. Maybe it's the cold open of season two since Cassian's joining the cause. Ooh, that would be an interesting way to do that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I like that. The sky crystal is still missing. Yep. Vel had it, right? Like he gave it to Vel and she never gave it back to Luthen. Yeah. I'm really curious what they're doing with that. And she did see Luthen and didn't even try. Right. Exactly. And so I think, it, you know, we'll save this for our season wrap, but like, you know, what's the storyline with uh, Vel and Cinta and Cassian going to be like? Because there's going to be some bad blood there. Yeah. It's uh, very interesting with that. And, and I wonder if Cinta is going to try to kill Cassian anyway. <laughs> right? Like, She's not above it. She she gets down like that. He Luthen's not even going to be able to talk. Cassian's just going to walk in and then <laughs> boop, boop, boop. and then we're like, wait, but we still have Rogue One to do. <laughs> Hopefully, get him into a back to tank quick. <laughs> uh, Blevin is back, baby, back from the outer rim, back from his cage. So uh -huh, mystery uh -huh. resolved there. I guess they finished making his component of the Death Star <laughs> uh, because they've allowed him to return. That's my head canon is right. he was in prison that whole time and then he just came back. Right. Not really, not really, but um, no, it was it was fun to see him and also like just this toxic workplace culture where like mm -hmm. the boys are all complaining yep. about like the woman who's speaking up. That's right. Uh, very interesting. But let's get into that later. Let's go there when we get to the scene. Sounds good. So for this um, breakdown, it's it really challenging because um, so much of it was intercut together and it was hard to uh, deconstruct. So, so what I thought we would do is um, cover a few of the characters that have shorter arcs um, that we can just sort of resolve really quickly. Then we can get into some of the larger characters and their arcs and then wrap it up with some of the set pieces and uh, talk about some of the, the bigger, like the funeral and, you know, Luthen and, and, um, and Cassian's final scene together. So that way we're not trying to slice through this uh, very convoluted storyline. It's not a convoluted storyline, but it was a very tight edit, and so it was pretty difficult to, to uh, pull apart. Right. Yeah, that sounds good to me. Okay. So the title sequence, David. What did you think about this? Yeah. So um, I think as we noted in the last episode, every title sequence, right? This is the little animated sequence where the uh, light starts to shine and the, the Andor letters uh, resolve and we get a piece of music with that. I went back this morning and listened to all 12 of those title sequences. Every single one of them is different. I've actually recorded them, and I think we may throw that into our um, season wrap-up, where you could, you know, maybe we'll put it at the end or something like that, where you can listen to all 12 uh, in order without break. But every single one of them is different, and they were using them, I think, as a like prelude. Like, you know, when you, you sit down, or like uh, in older movies, they would play like a little piece of music to like get things started, or if they, if they had an inter, or not an interlude, what do you call it? Intermission, you know, some intermission music. So it helps set tone and, and create some emotional stakes. 
The overture, if you will. That's the word I was looking for. Dang it. I've been looking for that. All, in my, I've been racking my brain. Well, that's what you get me for. You know what I mean? I went to, I went to music school for a time. I should have just asked you earlier. Anyway, so in, for this one, I have written in my handwritten notes, I've got driving beat, comma, machine, question mark, right? Because it starts out with a sort of a do, do, do sort of. Right. Um, um, very mechanical thing. And then the horns kick in. And as the horn sounds start to resolve, I'm like, high school marching band, question mark, question mark, question mark. And lo and behold, we have a marching band in this. And I just thought that <laughs> that was a really brilliant way to prime our, our pumps uh, before going into this episode to give us that uh, sonic quality that is going to resolve later in the episode, right? So they set up some tension right at the beginning, and then they resolve it much further down. Again, just excellent construction, really brilliant television making. Yeah. You know, actually, the music reminded me of uh, sort of 90s indie bands. Mm -hmm. I like the band Neutral Milk Hotel. They're one of my, one of my favorite bands. i I had a phase where I wore some suspenders, I'll be honest okay. with the audience. <laughs> um, and I used to listen to a lot of indie music, especially like indie 90s and early 2000s music. And, and Neutral Milk Hotel has some like really somber music that has that kind of like slightly out of tune mm -hmm. uh, marching band sound. And it, it reminded me of that so much. And it got me emotional partly because of that, because I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a dirge. This is going to be mm -hmm. bad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I when once we get all of those uh, twelve tracks together, I'll be really interested to get your take on those to see what you think about what they were doing with the music on those uh, title sequences. Variations on a theme, I guess. Yeah, well, oh, definitely variations on the theme. You can totally tell from from um, sequence to sequence, but they every one is different and unique, and um, you know, so it'll be interesting to see what they've what they've done there. Yeah, you know, when you look at the music in a in a piece of screen media like TV or film, uh -huh. you often have the composer, you know, who does like the themes, but you also have like the music supervisor who may be in charge of like deciding what goes where. You have people working on the arrangement, mm. so there's just so many hands that go into it. And I'm curious who did what here and how much one person had a hand in this because it feels so natural. Yeah, that's interesting. I've heard a few interviews with Tony Gilroy where he's talked about Nicholas Bratel who's the lead composer for this, I guess, because he wrote a lot of this music himself. And I guess Tony Gilroy himself is a bit of a, a musical devotee. I, I don't know to, if he's a musician himself or he's just really, really into music, but uh, they worked very intensely together on creating the music uh, for this um, specifically. So I think there's a lot of thought and construction into the choices that they made. Well, very cool. Did a great job. Okay, first up in our scenes, we have Wilman Pack. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Wilman. All right. Uh, and he is making some kind of device, which seems to pretty clearly be a bomb after a few seconds. Yeah. So his arc in this is pretty short over the, the various scenes. Obviously, we see him in like at least three scenes, four scenes, I think, making the device. And then we've got some scenes of him in the um, funeral procession and then sort of standing in the action and, and then chucking the bomb and then escaping with, um, with uh, Bix and uh, Brasso. 
So I thought the whole, at least at the beginning, it was a very Chekhov's gun kind of thing, right? Like the first thing they do is they're, they're showing us this kid making a bomb. You know, I loved him putting everything together, but especially when he starts turning that knob to bring the levels up, that was just ratcheting up the tension. I, it actually reminded me of music school for a minute because I, I studied audio for a while and I had this professor who was like, I hate how everything's digital today. And he took out a knob out of a box of junk that clicked, that was like a clicky analog knob. And he passed it around the class and he said, just feel mm. how that is just visceral. Right. And it was, it was kind of funny, but like, it kind of reminded me of that. Like this was a visceral turning yes. up and ratcheting up the tension. And it, you could like feel it, even though you didn't have it in your hands. And the way that they set him up making it was a nice framing device as well. It really, that knob, as you say, turning the tension. But then we're like, okay, we, we see some electronics, and then we see this kid, and there's a hologram on the desk, and then we see him looking at the hologram, and then you're like, oh, this kid is going to go do something. And yep. they give it to us in the first act of the, of the show, so we know it's going to go off later on. So. Like really, really well done framing. I, I thought the in, it was very interesting too. There's strongly links to to Cassian's youth as well because we did see that uh, flash of a scene where he charges some stormtroopers after they hang Clem. Uh huh. And here is you know Pack sort of like you know uh, radicalized by the death of his father, where Cassian was uh, similarly. I don't know, radicalized. I mean, he took action, right? You know, it landed him in, in a facility. I'm surprised they didn't kill him. But, you know, there were some nice parallels there between um, Cassian's background and uh, Wilman's background here. Yeah. You know, I'll say this. I think that this is just the first ball being thrown in the air by a juggler. That's what it feels like. Mm -hmm. it's the, the first half of this episode is just tossing balls in the air and right. when's one just going to drop? Nice. And it's reminiscent of uh Nemec's manifesto too mm -hmm. where he says you know yes. eventually one act will break the siege yeah and that just that was throughout the episode everything played into each other these things were all woven together you know i was listening to the watch podcast and um it was an interview with tony gilroy and uh so gilroy was um talking about um how some people that he's you know talking with are like coming at him saying like oh man like you're taking storylines right off the headlines of today's newspaper and you know all this kind of stuff and he's like no i'm not he's like these are old old stories in the course of human history of you know of the impact of oppression you know the boot heel of the oppressor how young people are radicalized, how they see as like a final only way out um, is the path of violence. And this is, you know, these are stories as, as old as human civilization. Right. Uh, there's nothing new here with a son trying to avenge his father, you know, for the, you know, f because of what the, the evil overlords have done to them. Yeah, no, I mean, that's what makes a good story is telling one of the classics in a new way you know yeah yeah i mean he's pulling from all these old sources i believe that they said uh the heist in episode six was really based on this heist uh that joseph stalin did i think yeah that uh, was to fund really the communist revolution yeah that was wild so uh, yeah i mean 
history contains all the stories if you want them. Mm-hmm. That's the point. Yeah. Anything else on pack? No, I, I think that's it. Uh, I, it. I'll be really interested to see where he ends up in season two, but that's for other discussions. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so Nurchi, this guy, I had forgotten who this guy was. Yeah. Until, like, I had to look it up, like, who he was, because he was such a nobody for so long. Mm-hmm. What'd you think? Yeah, um, I thought it was a great way to bring back uh, a character from episode one, because, yeah, it was a very just brief moment where he confronts Cassian in the streets, and he made a, a perfect character, a perfect snitch character to, like, you know... Like, the guy's hungry, right? He wants to get a reward. He sees an opportunity. I was really wondering, I think he was starting to have second thoughts as he was sitting there in the lobby of the, you know, the hotel uh, HQ for the Empire as Marva's, um, uh, what do you call an obituary? It's not an obituary. What, do, what is it, it when a- uh, Eulogy. Self-eulogy. A self-eulogy as her auto-eulogy was uh, playing. I was I was wondering he, he, there were some looks on his faces like he was like oh did I did I make a mistake I think that he was not the only one to do that though mm-hmm. I think that even um, Mosk was kind of contemplating his life choices afterward <laughs> That's true Yeah sitting there having a drink Also Mosk completely thinks that that Karn is dead Just to be clear I I'm oh. convinced that he thinks that Karn is dead because he didn't see him after the explosion. Right. And so he's just sitting there sort of lost what to do. That's a good call. Right. Yeah. I do like how they um, just resolved Nurchi's arc really quickly so that we didn't have this antagonist, this sort of floating antagonist out there. They're like, yep, you know, he, uh, he set Cassian up. He's sitting there waiting for his reward. Things start to go bad. And then boom, like, that's it. End of story. So the interesting thing was for me was at first he seems really suspicious and then he's in the bar and he says if you know something that I don't keep it that way. Yes. Which I eventually I kind of thought that that was just him throwing people off the scent. Mhm. Basically saying like oh I don't I don't want to know, but by him saying that he's admitting that he basically does know what he's saying. Is Cassian does know and he's probably coming. Yeah. And so when he um, when he catches up with the uh, oh I'm blanking on the name of the uh, lieutenant the ISB guy doesn't matter he's dead now <laughs> when he encounters him in the street you know he's like certain he's like Cassian is you know he's like take me in because I I've got information yeah for a second I actually thought he was going to lead them to a wrong location uh huh but yeah I don't know it was a it was a little bit of a an all over the place plot but it was good it was sort of showing a complex character who who was a little bit uncertain in his footing on this so yeah it was a cool little addition um and you know another ball in the air you know are they going to is he going to succeed in routing out cassian and sending them there first that's another uh, thing that they're juggling and you know it, it for you've got to do some plot mechanics no matter what you do in this right to get certain people into certain places and you know, retrospectively, looking at what we knew of Nurchi and what his motivations were, for him to turn, you know, to drop a dime on on Cassian in this way is, in, I think, entirely within his character. That it felt natural, right, for all of that to play out. And and they they show us that he's a clever guy, 
by the fact that when he sees Brasso and uh, what's his name, I think Vax talking, you can see him in the background of that moment when um, they're talking about Cassian, you know, the phone call that he had with Cassian. He's actually back in the shot behind them. And then they cut to that scene where he looks over and, you, and the, he, you, they, they show us uh, him looking over at that conversation. And then when he is in the bar having that uh, follow-up, he's saying, well, don't tell me if you do know, right? He, it's showing us that he is a clever guy, right? They're, they're telling us everything we need to know about that character, that he's smart, he's a street operator. And so um, when he's pointing out where Cassian is, because he's put it together visually, even though he hasn't actually seen him, that was um, really excellent plot mechanics buried inside a character acting within the character's motivation. And I'll say this, Cassian paid him back. He was honorable about that. <laughs> it's true. Cassian, go get your money back because this guy was ready to sell you out no matter what. Completely. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Why don't we head on to Mon Mothma, which had a she had a very interesting arc this episode. Yeah, although although brief. Right. So what did you think of this limousine scene, first of all? At first, I was really confused. It, it took me a moment to understand what was going on. And I believed Perrin when he was like, no, no, I'm not doing that. This is, and I was, I was scratching my head. I'm like, Mon Mothma, what are you doing? Like, wh what's going on? And then uh, it took me a while. Then I like, it was like, oh, okay. Uh, Chloris is totally like listening in on them. And then I still wasn't sure because it was Chloris working. I, I hadn't resolved yet if Chloris was working for Luthen or if he was ISB or, or somebody else. And then when he's in reporting to Blevin, I was like, oh, I was really slow on this one. No, as soon as Perrin was denying everything and seemed really earnest about it, mm -hmm. I was like, oh my God, this is genius. Because what better way to hide that you're moving money illicitly than to give a substitute illicit thing, which is yeah. much less serious for you? Yeah. I, I mean, absolutely genius on Mon Mothma's part. And I don't think she likes her husband that much. And she's like, well, if he goes to jail, he goes to jail. <laughs> that is some, uh, you know, talk about when we talk about sacrifice and we talk about like being hemmed in like that. And we're like, uh, you know, and, and Clea even asks Luthen, like, is she worth it? I hope she pans out. I hope she doesn't buckle. Like we're every time Mon Mothma's back is against the wall, we see her make a power move. Well, and also, I don't know if gambling is illegal here. Well, Canto Bite. <laughs> Go to Canto Bite. Well, I was just going to say, isn't that one of your favorite movies? Oh, The Last Jedi? Yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I wouldn't say it's one of my favorite. <laughs> I mean, I, the, the original trilogy is much better. Right, right. Um, I would say the original trilogy and Revenge of the Sith are both better, are mm. all better than that movie. And then, and Rogue One. But other than that, I think The Last Jedi is the best of the sequels and of uh, the other two prequels. But anyway, back to my point. I don't think that we necessarily know if gambling is illegal for Perrin to do, but I think what Mon Mothma is accusing him of is stealing from her family trust. Right. Which is 
you know, illegal, but that's something where like she'd probably have to accuse him. And so it's the perfect excuse because if she's not going to accuse him because that's her husband, like publicly, Mm -hmm. then it makes sense to have shady transactions that she's not talking about and not addressing with the bank because she doesn't want her husband to go to prison. But she also um, wants this money to be missing in a way that makes sense. And that's a serious power move, though, um, to to be willing to sacrifice your husband. Because even if they do cart him away, right, they show up one day and, you know, slap the cuffs on him, that still added scrutiny around her and on her. So it's a um, it's a dangerous play, and you're you're sacrificing the uh, husband of your you know the the father of your child, a man you've been married to for a, a long time. Look, she's a married woman now; she can take care of herself. <laughs> Not yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just kidding. But like that, uh, that it's it it took something for her to do that. Yeah. And and I and it's showing us her resolve as a character. And I really liked the way that they opened the scene. So like all season long, we've been seeing her pressed and pressed and pressed. And she is suffering under a lot of, of the stress and trying to keep it all together. And in the scene, the first thing she does is she unbuttons her collar and she breathes. Yeah. And she relaxes into it because she's finally taking some proactive action, right? All this time she's been on the defense and she's been fighting sort of a a rear, you know, falling back position, like, oh, trying to protect herself. And here she is, she's actually doing something proactive. And so when she opens her collar and she breathes, and that signals to us that here she is, Mon, Mon Mothma is standing up and she's not going to be passive in this uh, money shell game scenario anymore. She's actively, she's taking an active choice and that gives her relief. She can breathe again. No, I didn't notice that the first time. So thanks for pointing it out. That's a great visual signifier of what's happening inside. I want to point out one other little thing too. Um, I don't know if you noticed this, but like when we look into the side of the limo from outside, looking in at Mon Mothma as she's waiting for Perrin to come out, you can notice on the side of the limo the little moving reflections of all of the other traffic that's flying around in the air streets of Coruscant. So just the level of detail that they're putting into that, like that's super incredible. I think ILM is doing all the the visuals for this. So like those guys are pros at their game, and but that's just not a detail I would have ever thought of. Yeah, me either. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's the reason we're waiting until 2024 for more of this. <laughs> I think you're right. Okay. Cinta and Vel, what's going on over here? I did not get, feel like I, if, if I have one little criticism for this episode is I don't feel like I got a clear enough resolution to what was going on with them in this. I feel that's the one place where they maybe let a little a few scenes on the um, left, a few scenes on the cutting room floor. I mean, sure. I don't really think I needed anything resolved there either. And I think that if we had paused for like them to have like a loving conversation, a Mm -hmm. long form conversation that would have felt really forced for me. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm okay with them 
keeping the tension of this episode and moving it to the next season. That's fine with me. Right. I mean, we can assume, I don't know that we even needed a scene of them on some speeder bike or space bus, you know, clearing out. Like, I guess we can just assume that they're competent operators and they will, um, they'll get their butts off of Ferrix. Uh, no, we should have had a Monica VT. Uh, <laughs> Vespa ride. <laughs> yeah. A Vespa ride. Like, uh, like Tanya and the white Lotus. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, yeah, no, I, I think that Cinta basically was like, girl, I'm working, you know, like <laughs> you gotta back off because I am on the job right now. Yeah. And this is the presentation. This is the corporate presentation here. Yeah. And I can't mess this up, uh, which makes sense because she knows that this is the moment where Cassian's going to come back. I mean, Vel shouldn't expect her to take her eyes away from anything at this point. Yeah, that is a, a bad. That's very uh, a sentimental move on Vel's part to to uh, try to shift focus uh, in that moment. Yeah, Cinta is just laser focused on this mission and laser focused on the rebellion. And did she say in episodes four through six? I'm going to pay attention to like what happened to her, uh, why she joined the cause. I feel like she did say, but it must have been horrible for her to be this committed. The, I'm trying to recall, I think I did hear uh, someone else mention that she mentions that um, like her whole family is, or planet or something like that is, uh, I think it was in the um, early Eldani episodes when Cassian is introduced to everybody. I think there's some conversation about her backstory then. But yeah, I'm going to have to pick that up on the rewatch for sure. Right. Cinta's cold, man. She straight up murdered that dude. People were talking about, you know, I think it was left open whether she killed the guys in the Aldani attack uh -huh. that she was watching the hostages. Right. She definitely killed them. Are we kidding? Like, she doesn't care. If you're on the Imperial side, you're dead If in her eyes. If she has the opportunity to kill you, she will. That makes sense because otherwise they would have had her description out on the uh, All Points Bulletin as well. Right, exactly. Cinta's cold, man. Like, <laughs> she's not here to play. She will cut your throat before you can say Palpatine. Mm -hmm. Is this the first uh, normal knifing, normal, quote unquote, like use of a knife to kill somebody in um, Star Wars? Hmm. We've seen blasters. We've seen laser swords. We've seen, you know, <laughs> you know, planets and Death Stars blow up. I don't think we've ever seen one being stab another being with just a normal mundane weapon. Yeah, that's super interesting. I have no idea. I don't think so. But write in if you remember that and or at thelorens.com. Yeah, I mean, who knows what's going on in, the, you know, obviously the comics and, uh, you know, the animated series and the books. I mean, that's a, there could be stuff there. I'm on season two of Rebels. How's it going? And I'm doing, oh, it's great. I mean, Is it? I'm, I'm loving Rebels. Uh, yeah, a lot of Ahsoka, a lot of, a lot of really good stuff. Uh, I think I'm gonna go Clone Wars after this. Nice. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for it. Speaking of Ahsoka, it's coming up. Yeah. Is that in uh, Lorehound's future? I'm covering it. I don't know if you are. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you hear it here first, folks. We're gonna be uh, all over the Star Wars action. Um, uh, I will say just to put a capstone on Cinta and Vel, I really enjoy seeing them operating i really enjoy the dynamic that they have and i think more than anything it's like oh, okay how you know did we get a beat with them you know could we had a couple longer beats with them could we have seen them escape whatever i think my criticism not does not stem from a uh well i didn't see him escape so i don't know what happened more as uh i want to spend more time with them 
And I didn't get to spend time with him on this episode, really. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you on that. So, Dedra and Dedra and Cyril. Yes. <laughs> so, what what's going on with Dedra? I loved the... So, we get that opening scene with Pac making the bomb, but then we get the shuttle flying in and landing. And it was so evocative of a Darth Vader-like scene. Right, you know, it, it comes in. There's stormtroopers standing guard. She comes down with two death troopers. I was like, "Ooh, girl is ready for some business." I even love the way when she's looking in at Bix, how she removes her cap. She doesn't just lift her hand up and pull her cap straight up. She reaches out and across and peels it back off to preserve her perfectly coiffed hair. Like she is all about it, and I love it. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's really interesting to see her progression this episode because, first of all, again, they kind of want us to root for her in the beginning because she's the one making the right calls. Yeah. And everyone else goes, this was a great line, was today was about wiping the taste of Aldani from the Emperor's mouth. I mean, amazing. Yeah. Uh, First of all, it shows how, like, in these tyrannical states, Mm-hmm. you're more concerned with the emotional state of the emperor than with effectively ruling. Yeah. They lost out on so much intel on mm-hmm. their slave labor that they're doing with the prisons, on yeah. all these resources that the empire wants, all because the emperor wants to feel less personally wounded. There was an interesting uh, thing that I read recently in some uh, current news about a current CEO who recently took over a particular... Stop. Stop. (laughs) Uh, About Elon Musk and about how, like at SpaceX and Tesla, there was a whole layer of management that has been formulated just to contain and manage that um, interaction with him. Whereas at Twitter, (laughs) he came in cold and it was just raw feed, right? Uh, The signal was unprocessed. And whereas these other two companies, where there was a longer, slower developmental arc, they were their own companies before, and then they're bought, and there were layers of management, and time has developed where the organism of the company can create a protective barrier uh, around him so that they can just, you know, move on. And, And Partagas is saying that same thing. This isn't about anything but mollifying the emperor. Right. Giving him a quick and easy win, making him feel good. Follow us at the Lorehands. Anyway. (laughs) Yes, right. (laughs) (laughs) We will be complaining and tweeting the same time. Anyway. Yes, I think that this was a really great insight into what the Empire is doing. And also the response he gives Dedra when she says, you know, this wasn't right, is what makes her act rashly and Mm -hmm. what makes her make mistakes, I think. Yeah. Right? She gets out there into the fray. Yeah. Right. Like she's saying, I don't need an escort. I don't need this and that. I'm just going to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And she's feeling invincible because she's got Dr. Gorst making everyone a little sniveling puppet for her. Mm-hmm. I, and I think that, first of all, she needed to be taken down a notch, mm-hmm. a lot of notches. Mm-hmm. And, it, you know, if this had happened to her, if this uh, getting pulled out by the crowd had happened to her in episode like six, I might have felt badly for her. But, now, even after, you know, her, her uh, sexist 
you know, put down by the boys at work. Right. Yep. Yeah. I felt badly for her a little bit for that, but she's such a monster that I don't feel badly for her at all when the rebels start kind of just about to kill her. <laughs> right. The the terror that of that scene I really felt come off the screen, just like being out of control, just having that many number of bodies around you, pummeling you, dragging you, like there's no way you can defend yourself. There's no way that you're in control of yourself in that moment. And, you know, the, here's an interesting thought, like, so here's Dedra, usually the one delivering that kind of punishment taking other people's agencies away, agency away, putting those people into the prison, you know, uh, pipeline, the, the, the prison industrial, you know, pipeline. Um, and here she is, she's feeling firsthand the effects of what she has been laying down. She is a victim of her own creation in this moment. She couldn't even make it on the New York City subway on rush hour. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> it's true. She'd have a panic attack just dealing with people hopping into the train. Are you kidding? Uh, no, I mean, Dedra is, you know, Dedra has been shown as the coward she is. You know, like, she mm -hmm. can't take what she's dishing out. Right. Uh, and and uh, it did feel a little bit good to have her have some justice, but then Karn kind of just takes it away from her. But her career is over. I think we can agree with that. Uh, she, you know, she bet everything on this mission. Right. Watch her back. He, she keeps being told. She right. has to do everything right. And I think that's something maybe Tony Gilroy is saying, too, is like for this woman to rise in the ranks of this boys club, she has to do everything perfectly. Mm -hmm. And now she's messed up and now her career is probably over. That's a really interesting. I hadn't actually thought gone down that line of, uh, of thought yet. Like what's going to what's going to be the fallout from Ferrix here? Because oh, she's be moving in with Karn and his mom. <laughs> She's gonna be Don't eating carnos uh, with uh, with it, Mama. Stop Karn. it! Stop it! Oh. I'll, give me give me Doctor Gorst over this. <laughs> oh my goodness! Oh, can I have insight into your achievements too? That's what she's gonna say to to Dedra. Oh, you're you're my son's fiance. What are you two unemployed? Oh yeah, that makes sense. So are you shipping them? I don't want to, but it seems like it's <laughs> happening. I feel the ick from it. Yeah, <laughs> but, totally. Uh, I mean, Karn in that moment was just like very creepy. Mosk was like, dude, like, <laughs> he was like slapping, like he was like, dude, stay focused on mission. You can't be chasing the, the girl here. I think he, and I think he is feeling very lost and dejected sitting on the steps there after the after the battle's over oh boy that was bad yeah no i think i think uh mosk thinks that karn's dead yeah completely dead right um i i wonder if dedra will go back and face the isb or if she knows like her career's done and she's just gonna like go into hiding with karn now i what one of the things that i really am left wanting to know at the end of this episode is what the effect of marva's words and the empire's action is going to have, how that's going to reverberate out, not only at large, right, you know, oh, there's this incident on Ferrix, you know, it's in the news bulletins and all that kind of stuff, but what our characters, how our characters are going to walk away from this moment, because I think all of them were being affected by her words and affected by what they saw and experienced. I mean, Dedra was like, uh, like a pair of socks in a, in a, in a, 
tumble dry uh, washing machine thing, right? Like she was just getting tumbled around here. That is terrifying to have something like that happen to you. Yeah. So she's going to be forever altered regardless of whether she's, you know, living in with Mama Karn or not. Absolutely. I'm really excited to see where that plot line goes, even though I hate both of those people. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. I want more of this. I want to hate watch the crap out of it. All right, David, why don't we take a quick break? And when we get back, we'll get into Cassian Andor. And we're back with the man of the hour, Cassian Andor, Casa, as we once knew him. What's going on with Andor? So first of all, why don't we talk about his flashback to Clem? You know, my notes are just like all over the place and I have so many thoughts and feelings and like there are so many little snippets and scenes in this. It's like, it's so hard to bring it all into focus, but I think talking about Clem is a, is a really good place. The moment when he goes there to touch that brick, I was like, wait, they didn't, you know, that can't be um, Marva's brick. It's like got vines and stuff on it. Like I was really disoriented um, when that started happening because I was just like, oh my God, he's back. And then the voiceover kicked in and I was like, who's that? And then it dawned on me, oh shit, it's Clem. Because we hardly heard his voice at all. I think it was one flashback and one episode. Or no, we saw that flashback. And then I think during the rescue, when they were pulling him off the, the ship um, right. at the very beginning. So it was, wasn't, his voice wasn't registering uh, strongly with me, but I absolutely adored that scene. And uh, it just gave me so many feels. And really watching Diego Luna act that scene, because he, he's standing around with like 50 crew, a camera in his face on a set. They're not playing the music or anything like that. Like, he's just dry acting that thing. He's, like, emoting to a brick, right? Yeah, he, he's really an expert at emoting on his face. I mean, he, oh. he with the prison plot line, uh, with the, the original stuff where he wasn't talking much, but he was in uh, talking to Luthan, and he's, we're trying to gauge how he feels about it. Everything here, I mean, every time he's quiet, I'm like, that's almost my favorite acting of Diego Luna is when he mm-hmm. shuts up. <laughs> uh, but I mean, he's a great actor in general, but I've just, it's just such a masterclass in facial expressions. Yeah, absolutely. And Clem, the voiceover here, um, and uh, just, I got to put a, a, a mark on this one really quick. Here we have Cassian being spoken to by three different dead people. Like, what is he, the ghost of Christmas past here? We've got Clem. We've got Marva twice, uh, one from, you know, via Brasso and then one via Hologram. And then we've got Nemec's Manifesto. So there's your nice sort of uh, trinity there, right? Uh, The Holy Spirit and the Father and the, uh, I don't know, whatever, the Father and the Mother. Um, the Slamil and the Slamazel. <laughs> Pepper Incorporated. Um, I used watched a lot of Three's Company when I was a young man, <laughs> young boy. But uh, the the that actor's voice, the soothing quality of it, the the confidence of it, the calmness of it was so beautiful and so moving. And then to see that little scene showing him, like you know, this father to son, like look, just two minutes, not not more, not less. Um, they don't look down. They don't look past the rust. 
um, opportunities everywhere. Like I don't have the whole thing written down, but it was just so moving. And I think it was a piece that we needed for Cassian to further turn the lock to, you know, begin to open this door for him to become what he ultimately is going to become. Well, and I think it's really interesting, too, that you have these three people who are at different stages in their lives. You have the young man, Nemec, who is the dreamer. Uh-huh. You have the middle-aged Clem, right. who is passing down wisdom. Yes. And then you have uh, Marva. The matriarch. Saying, I regret some things, but I have great hope. Mm-hmm. You know, passing down sort of the end-of-life thoughts. And just these three people really give Cassian the full spectrum of why this rebellion needs to happen. Right. So let's talk about what Clem says, which is basically he's showing him how to uh, refurbish these components. Right. And he takes the rust off and he says, you know, people just don't want to look past the rust, but there's good stuff underneath. Mm-hmm. What did you think about this this uh, little speech allegory? I am still processing it. I, I think I need to, to watch it again. I watched it... Um the first time, and I was trying to write my notes, and it was right after this is when I put my pencil down, uh, because I was like, I'm getting too blown away here. I watched it with my spouse the other night, and then I've watched some snippet scenes. I haven't actually gotten a full third watch in yet, but I really need to sit down and focus and, and come back to some of these scenes. I was trying to pull the meaning out while Clem was talking and trying to see the obvious parallels, and I don't know that I saw the obvious stuff, I could maybe reach for some things. I think there is some stuff in there about, because Cassian says to Jin at some point in Rogue One, like, I've been recruiting for the, I've been in this fight since I was whatever age, and I've been recruiting for the rebellion for a long time. So he's a guy that is not unlike Luthen. He's out there pulling stuff from the detritus of the of this of this world in this galaxy and looking for these pieces and parts that can be cleaned up and then slapped into this machine called the rebellion so maybe that's i think what i'm taking from it uh for now yeah he sees what's underneath and uh it's it's a great skill to have when you're recruiting for this and especially when you see how ragtag the rebellion is the whole time yeah and uh you need people of all kinds did you have some thoughts on on the meanings that that he has here? I mean, I like your description. I was uh-huh. sort of trying to figure out what he was trying to say to Cassian or what what the show was trying to tell us with those words. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of it was just you know Cassian himself. If you if you take away the rust, I think it pairs really well with uh, Brasso's last words from Marva to Cassian. This mm-hmm. whole if his. You know, he feels all he needs to feel and knows all he needs to know. And when the two of those combine, he will be an unstoppable force for good. And that combined with this scene really have his parents show how much, first of all, they love him and how much they think he is really the pinnacle of their dreams. Mm-hmm. Is this is this is the warrior of the rebellion. So it's interesting you, you you touch on that, and I think we could segue maybe into the Brasso and and Cassian exchange, um, sort of overlapping this with Clem. So like he has the manifesto from Nemec, right? So that's that's information, right? That's spirit, right? He has this specific knowledge and wisdom that he's gotten from 
Clem, right? He's gotten this unconditional love from Marva. And so when he's got all, those are those parts coming together, right? For him to become this unstoppable force. Right. And I think that, you know, Brasso's, Brasso's words to him in this point are mm. what let him open his heart to Marva's message later. Because mm-hmm. I think if he had felt guilt, he wouldn't have been able to see that and, and hear that message. So I'm really glad that we had that scene before Marva's hologram. Right. The scene of him touching Clem's brick, um, like, really set my emotional uh, machinery in motion, right? And yeah. then when Brasso delivers Marva's message, I wasn't a weeping mess because I think I cried myself out in episode 10. I didn't have any tears. <laughs> um, but I was, ta- I was really, really moved. I was really, really moved by those words coming from Brasso, right? Like th- this guy that we met in the first episode and he gets him to go along with his stuff. You know, I, I didn't ever expect Brasso to be this emotionally and, and uh, situationally critical to the storyline. But the, the chemistry between uh, Cassian and Brasso, you know, between those actors and, and between those characters is just lovely. And for him to be the one to deliver Marva's final words to him was just so touching. Also, the actor who plays Brazo is great at just tearing up a tiny bit. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> and it just so good. really melts my heart. I yeah. just, I feel his pain there. Mm-hmm. Um, and this genius plan of putting someone else, another big guy in his vest and, and leading the empire there where we've been played. And then, <laughs> and then next we see Cassian meeting up with Brasso. That was perfect. Yeah. But yeah, this message, this message was really emotional. This was, this was the first m- moment in there that makes you go like, whoa. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they're down in the tunnel, right? Like, that's where, you know, she was, like, sneaking around before. So, it's really fitting that, you know, that they, you know, have that exchange there. Oh, and then I'm just remembering, too, Cassian's regret. Like, I was coming back. I couldn't get back. I, you know, I was coming to to take her away from all of this. I was coming to, like, you know, uh, I was going to be here. And she died. Like, his deliveries were so painful. The re- you could really feel his pain and regret that he wasn't there. And everybody throughout the episode, they're like, like when, he ju- when, he, uh, when he's in Bix's yard and um, he runs into um, Pelga, and Pelga's like, oh man, I'm sorry about your mom. And then the cook in the, in the hotel, like, oh dude, I'm really sorry about your mom. <laughs> like he's got a gun in his face and he's like, oh, hey, Cassian. Oh man, I'm really sorry about your mom. Like everybody loved Marva, and he it it just further welds this uh, story of who these people were, who Clem was, who Marva was, who Cassian was, coming up with these people, uh, and how important they were to his emotional life. So when he expresses his regret to Brasso, it's every every word that he says is just so earned in that moment. I think that Marva and Clem were clearly pillars of the community. Yeah. You know, and uh, it's it, this whole community is really feeling the pain of this. I mean, imagine this pillar of the community goes down and you can only have 40 people there. They wanted to keep it to 30. Yeah. Really, really insane. <laughs> but ugh. anyway. 
Oh, I want to go back manifesto. to uh, Go ahead. Oh yeah, I want to go back to. Uh, Cl- uh, I just saw a note here in my notebook here. Um, uh, one of Clem's line, the ma- and it, which is the opening of of that sequence is the man who sees everything is more blessed than cursed. Hmm. I'm not sure yet how to process that line because I'm like, is it like really? Are you more blessed if you see everything? Because yeah. then you have to be responsible to act if you see things that are wrong. Well, that's also something we talk about even in the White Lotus is like this contrast, you know, there's two couples in the White Lotus. One is super hyper-focused on the news and keeping up to date, and the other just ignores it entirely. And which Mm -hmm. one of those is better? Or is either one better? And I think that it is something in in circles and activist communities especially where you say – people are much more miserable when they know the truth. And that (laughs) that often is true, you know? Um, But I think that I think that that sort of diminishes that the world is full of beauty as well as it is full of pain. Yeah. And I think Clem is saying that. It's like, you know, if you if you truly open your eyes and see everything, you'll see that there is a little more good in this world than bad. Mm. Mm. That's good. All right. Should we talk about this is premium content? Yes, uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's talk about Nemec. I thought this was a really nice place to place this, you know, scene of, um, or these scenes of Nemec speaking to Cassian. Again, this idea that there's these three dead people talking to Cassian and moving him further down his uh, his storyline. And the way that they also used Nemec's voiceover, because there's that scene where Bix is in her cell, and we hear Nemec talking about there will be times when the struggle seems impossible. I know this already, alone, unsure, dwarfed by the scale of the enemy. Like, you really feel that for Bix right there in that moment. And then, uh, from a, a filmmaking sort of thing, there's some thunder off, and then I think we cut to Luthen in that, that moment. And then we hear, remember, this freedom is a pure idea. And, oh, that's when we cut to Luthen. And... Using the storm motif, like that's a great, you know, try, you know, well used uh, mo- literary and, and visual motif, right? You know, with having thunder and lightning is to, to signify uh, uh, trouble on the, on the uh, horizon. Um, but I really liked them using that voiceover to again set some more things in motion and to clue us into some of the things that are, are coming. I think that it's okay that they used some perhaps cliche tropes in this because it uh-huh. was supposed to be these ramblings of a young revolutionary. Right. Also, can I just say, does this actor record audiobooks? Because I would listen to this guy's voice all day. <laughs> so pleasant. Yeah. Uh, between him and Clem, I mm-hmm. want all my all my audiobooks narrated by them. Clem would be a great uh, audiobook uh, reader. Oh yeah, that's a rich voice. That'll put me. That'll put me right to sleep and wake me right up. You know what I'm saying? Anyway. I thought that this was an excellent way to do this because I think earlier in the season I said something like, you're not going to hear, you know, Nemec's voice as an overlay and Cassian just like holding the book and having this cutesy thing where he like wakes up and he's he's now a revolutionary. But having it be an actual in-universe recording mm-hmm. was something I had not considered. And I really liked this because... It does seem like something Nemec would do. He does seem like the kind of guy who likes the sound of his own voice, I say, as a podcaster. <laughs> and it does feel natural that he was wanting this to sound very 
performed, you know, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. theatrical. So it really, it really was very good. I like that Cassian heard as much as he needed to and threw it down too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he didn't savor every word. He was like, yeah, no, I get what Nemec is saying. There's a, a great scene where uh, Cassian is in that old, his old ship, which is the ship that took him off of um, his or- original planet and where he would sort of hole up from time to time, where he goes and he stands at the back door and he's in silhouette, right? And it's light outside and he's dark on the inside. Um, so visually, it's a you know, beautiful scene. But we go from him listening to the audiobook, and I don't know if you, you caught this, but there's, he's listening to the audiobook, and the audio is what they call uh, diegetic, right? It's music that the character would hear in the world. And then the audio switches to non-diegetic, which is then it's a voiceover that we hear, and it's not a recording that's playing back in the real world. And so there's a, a fade over from the little, um, you know, Kindle book talking to Cassian to us hearing the audio at the level that we all hear all the audio. And so it, it's more clear, it's stronger. And then that's when we join Cassian looking out at the back, you know, from the back of the ship. And it was just a, a really, again, beautiful piece of television making where they're bringing Nemec's voice from the outside to the inside, from the outside of this little device to our inner monologue, and really um, internalizing what Nemec is telling us, that it occurs spontaneously and without instruction. That tyranny requires constant effort, right? It's an unnatural thing. Um, and, and, we're, and Cassian, in that moment, is internalizing it. He's not listening to it on the outside. He's actually understanding the truth of it uh, from an in- interior perspective. It's kind of almost a theory of entropy with people, though, you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's the the natural state of the universe is to be chaotic and mm-hmm. is to have all these different cultures being free and have all these individuals being themselves and the empires tamping down on that and mm-hmm. preventing people from being anything but ordered is unnatural. And that's what requires the effort. And so you do see, again, all these balls in the air. You see Cassian, you see uh, Little Pock. You see Brasso, all, all these people who are, and even B2 Emo, yes. like all these dif- different things that are coming together to make this happen that are perhaps unrelated, but are all leading up to the same thing, which is the spark that's going to light the fire. And we get that fire <laughs> in this episode with the funeral procession. Yep. Yep. So let's get into that. Yeah. Let's get into it. Why don't we talk first about sort of the marching band coming in and B2 Emo getting escorted to the front. Dude, this um, this whole scene tripped me out, like, in the best possible way. I was like, when they first cut to the musicians, you know, warming up their instruments and stuff, I'm like, what? No, what? And then I was like, oh, click, right? Like the, the opening uh, title sequence music. And I, I was just... There's no way that I could predict. I was I was completely in suspense. I was completely in the show because this was totally unexpected. This is totally something new. Who that you thought that you would have these marching bands converging from all over the city, you know, to and and these wild ass instruments 
And I love the fact that they just got like all these regular marching band folks. I, you know, there's plenty of marching bands out there. We see them, you know, in festivals and fairs and all that kind of stuff. And I was just like, oh, this is so cool. This is like totally awesome. And then the kicker for me with the ba marching band was the colors, right? Because there was orange and there was red and I think there was some yellow. And you know what it reminded me of was in A New Hope when all the attack squadrons are going in and they're like, oh, red leader, yellow re leader, right? Like it was like these are different squadrons of uh, musicians coming in to, you know, attack the, the empire here. Right. Yeah, no, this was from the start. People were already pissed at the empire. You could tell that nobody was happy about the way this was going down, mm -hmm. about the limited number of people everything and then once you get to marva's speech that just kicks it off that was not it, again like she said to cassian you were just the spark that lit the fire but mm -hmm. it, i think she was the spark that lit the fire on ferrix and how about this message being delivered from a droid right <laughs> where have we seen that before help me obi-wan kenobi you're my only hope uh and in here rather than pleading for help She's inciting people to action, right? She's like trying to get people to wake up, right? You know, like, what did she say? Like, if I could do it all over again, I'd wake up sooner. Yeah, you know, this is something that I think has been around. In, this is where the animated series are at their best is when you have these different instances of like a planet waking up uh -huh. and sort of saying like, hey, you know, separately from all the other planets, like we don't want to be under this empire. And it's sort of having all these different shows show this in different ways kind of shows how the, the Empire's oppression creates these opportunities and creates these forces that make people rise up in their own individual way. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Rebels, you have Lethal is the big planet that that centers around and, and Ezra, the main character, has to inspire people there. And then here you have Andor and his mother inspiring people on Ferrix. And so all these little things, like Nemec is saying, are adding up mm -hmm. until something will break the siege. And I guess you could say that what broke the siege was Luke Skywalker destroying the Death Star. Right. You know, I, but that was not the first thing. Like all these, all these planets were ready to rise up already. Right. I, I mean, Nemec says, uh, "Remember this: freedom is a pure idea. It occurs spontaneously and without instruction." So that goes right to your point of like all these people and all these planets and all these worlds going, wait a minute, like this isn't right, like and starting then starting to push back. Right, right, exactly. And that's the thing is like you have all these different cultures, which again, they've already said that they're they're tamping down on all these all these uh, religious rituals and things like that. You have all these different cultures around the galaxy. And yet this empire wants everybody to be uniform. You know, mm -hmm. they, we know that they're racist. We know that they want only humans and not. Uh, other other species they want very little culture they want uh every everything that they make looks like white and black it's it's just everything is uniform and miserable and so you can't sustain that forever because people get bored and people want to live their lives and just look at uh niamos where yeah. nobody can go to the beach anymore because the stormtroopers have arrested them all or have scared them off in some way it's just the more you disrupt the everyday life of people, right. the more people are going to get fed up. And that's something that Luthen realizes. And that's why he wanted Aldani to force the Empire's hand here. What do you think um, of Luthen in this scene when he's sort of standing there on the stairs next to the, the hotel and he's just watching and listening? Did you have any 
thoughts about his reactions, what was playing out on his face? I think he realized he might have underestimated Cassian. In that you moment, know, I right think then? That, I mean, when he's just... Yeah. I mean, uh-huh. Because this is who raised Cassian. This oh. is Marva Andor. They oh. literally call her Marva Andor there. That's a good point. I totally missed that. Right, because she totally calls out her, her name. And so he has to connect that point. Oh my God, I hadn't even thought of that. Right. He knows what he's listening to. He's listening to the woman that raised Cassian. Oh, that puts the ending into a whole new light for me right there, what you just said. Right. And that's why I'm saying it feels inevitable. Like Uh once he has this uh, experience listening to Marva, he says, oh shit, should I kill this guy or is he useful to me? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's already questioning himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have hesitated with the pistol. Right. Right. If he was just another thief, right? And you're your average right. thief. Look how callously he discards Krieger. Mm-hmm. Do you really think that he would have hesitated to pull that trigger if he hadn't heard that speech? That is a really good point. I think you're right. I think you're right. Because he's watching, he's standing there watching the crowd, listening to Marva. He's feeling the energy of these people who get slaughtered, but he he feels the power of her words. She's speaking truth to power. And then the fact that he knows that this is his mom, whoa, wow, that is a really, really cool insight. And and I think you're right. Like if he were just another thief who bested his system, right, and like beat him to his own ship, right. he would have just smoked him. But he's like, no, this guy is like ultra special. He's the real deal. Yeah. He's a hero, and uh, Luthen needs all the heroes he can get. Yeah, it's true, <laughs> as, we, as he has said. Speaking of stormtroopers, man, oh man, like, we have come, we have been trained, I think, for uh, a long time now to see stormtroopers as sort of buffoons. Right. Even in Rebels, I was watching it last night, and one of the per- people says, you shoot like a stormtrooper. Like, it's a running joke <laughs> in-universe. Oh, ouch. Uh, they were shooting pretty uh, accurately in this scene here. Yeah, that was terrifying. Yeah. And to have these faceless, all-white, gleaming all-white, like we talk about the homogeneity <laughs> of the Empire, here it is in the embodiment of these you know, troopers, they're not even like, like with the shore troopers, right? They're like, you can see their sort of legs and arms and they've got some plates and a helmet, you know, that's it. With the stormtroopers, they are ghostly white head to toe. So their humanity is so far suppressed and, and sort of buried and covered over. And to have these soldiers just gunning people down like that, um, it has, has to be terrifying. Right shoot to kill all of a sudden. And and that's something that Dedra was opposed to, and, and yeah. that guy defied Dedra's orders. Right. He's the He was the garrison commander or the planetary, whatever rank he was. Um, I'm actually surprised that they, well, you know, that's a really good point. Another really good point was that um, they let that go on for a long time. And I kept thinking to myself, why are they letting, why isn't, why aren't they just like clearing these people out much, much sooner? Why did they let it get to this point? It's because they were acting on Dedra's, ooh, they were acting on Dedra's orders. Dedra's career is effed, man. That's you what I'm saying. So like, right. she, she literally manufactured the situation. Oh, they wouldn't, they wouldn't damn. even have let them have the funeral. No, they would If Dedra hadn't made them. You are so right. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Ooh, the Karn Tedra <laughs> of it all is like even freaking me out even more. She can't go back. 
No. She no. can't go back. I mean, she, she, Vader's going to show up right away and force choke her. You, you, you got no <laughs> way out of that one. or something, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oof, that's boy. no good. That's, that's rough. That's no good. The Inquisitors don't care about her. She's not Force-sensitive. Anyway. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, the Inquisitors ch- ch- chase down Jedi, don't they? But Vader, he doesn't discriminate. He, no. anybody, he'll Force-choke <laughs> you. No problem. You need a Force-choke? I'm your guy. I'm, I'm Darth Vader. Is Vader born by this point? That's a good point. I don't know. I'm not sure where Vader's creation is at this uh, Is he born? Yet. This is five year, This is five BBY, so this is five years Vader before. is in the suit in uh, Return Revenge of the Sith. Okay. So, like, right after... Uh, Luke is born. Okay. Yeah. No, you're fine with that. Vader's okay. Vader's around. He's just not in this series. Right. Um, what else should we talk about uh, around the funeral? Why don't we talk about the actual speech she gave, mm-hmm. what she said? So she was saying a lot about, I wish I had woken up earlier, you know, if I could do it again. And I love this because, again, a cheaper show would have had her successfully go in the hotel and save Bix and being like this rockin' grandma who is uh, saving everybody and a rock star now. But this one said, no, I woke up too late and it's not too late for you. And these are my dying words is wake up now. That was a great way to use Marva's reawakening because I was like, what, mm-hmm. what are they doing with this? You know, when she just was like, no, I'm not going, I'm staying here and I'm right. going to be a revolutionary now. I, and I'd love that, you know, she's talking about how there's um, a darkness at the center of the universe and it's growing and it's not here to visit anymore. It's here to stay. And I was just like, oh, yeah, that like the emp- the emperor himself, right? You know, Palpatine, like, yeah, you know, it's emanating from a single source here all throughout. Um, and it's inf- infecting us. And, you know, when we're asleep, we allow it to grow. Those whole, the, all of those metaphors. And when you think about what, you know, Gilroy has said, that you know, this isn't a modern day story. We're not talking about modern day politics. We're talking about the the totality of human civilization here, where this on the one side this need to dominate and control, and on this other side this need to push back and to live quote unquote free without being without that kind of oppression. It's uh, it's a really interesting speech for how it it sets up so much of what the show is about like there's so much of what this show is about is in this holographic message well i mean i think that marva was basically saying well the yoke wasn't on our neck for so long that we forgot it was there you know and and they were still under imperial control even if it was right. an independent contractor right but because they kind of left them alone they basically said yeah. well it's not my problem and finally it was forced yep. to be their problem <laughs> because of what Cassian did, which is kind of insane Caskin brought the empire down on them and and he did you know she could say it's not his fault but i mean he was the direct cause now they don't need to act like that of course that the real cause is the empire uh, the emperor but yeah i mean it's really in- incredible to see her sort of pass this on and again lift them up and the dead really are lifting everybody up this Absolutely. episode yeah uh, 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 it, in more ways than one, I did love Brasso with the bricks, the brick on Rick's road. Right, that's my new. <laughs> oh yeah, my new murder mystery clue. Brasso with a brick. Oh my god, so good. Also, here's your opportunity to rant about get uh, B two emo getting kicked over. Yeah, you know, fuck that guy. <laughs> that's what I have to say about that. But B two is safe. He does die, doesn't he? I did, don't think he does. I can't. I thought that was the officer who died. He Maybe no, I'm he wrong. gave he gives the order to fire. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. 
You're right. So, but be too safe, you know. I like, and Cassian's just <laughs> dogging B two. He's like, B 2s like, oh cool, you're coming with us, and he's like, no, I'm not. And he's and B two. I'm surprised B two just doesn't tell him to f off, right? Just like yeah. you know, <laughs> kick rocks, man. Because every time you come around, you promise me one thing, but you deliver another. What? Maybe he'll like self leap because because he's a droid. He'll start cursing Cassian <laughs> out, but Cassian, you mother bloop bloop. bloop. <laughs> Cassian, yeah, yeah, that would be fun, wouldn't it? I don't know where that's going to end up with Jess flying, and I loved um, Cassian's instructions to her, just like on like how to fly low and then like hit it and go climb straight up. And there's so many motifs in this whole series about climbing, like and going up, like they had to climb through the. The meteor storm, people are climbing ladders, people are, you know, uh, uh, climbing up out of things, climbing cliff faces. So it was just a really great um, uh, imperative, you know, this, this instruction that, that he gave to Jess. And I don't wonder, I think Brasso was looking a little nervous sitting in that chair there. I wonder if Brasso's afraid of flying. Oh, yeah. He, I don't think he's ever been on a ship before. Think about it. Oh, really? He's, he's just a oh. working class man working on Ferrex. Uh-huh. Seems like he was born and raised there. Why would he have been on a, on a... He's a ship breaker, but he's never flown on a ship. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I don't know where in season two we're going to end up and meet up with those guys, but um, they certainly are leaving that door wide open, right? You know what else we didn't talk about yet is sort of what Bix is doing in all this. Oh, man. You know, Bix, oh, Bix. is listening to this oh, speech Bix. and and... Again, delirious. I mean, I think we kind of get the full sense of how damaged she is in this episode, mm-hmm. where Cassian comes in and she says, Marvel was here. It's like she wasn't there. Uh, it, yeah. was, it was bad. And, and she sort of, as Cassian said, she's sort of coming to throughout the episode. As she gets outside, yeah. she's regaining herself a little bit. Yeah. Interesting uh, about the Bix rescue. You know, I had theorized earlier on in a previous podcast about like, well, what is Cassian going to do when he finds out that Bix is being held by the Empire? And in another episode, Luthen says something about, uh, you know, Clea says, oh, there's no options. And, and uh, Luthen says, no, there's always other options. Or, you know, that's not true. There's always another option. Um, and I think that something that I found interesting that a characteristic that both Luthen and Cassian share is that neither believe in the no-win scenario. Right. That they're going to do whatever it is. There's always another move. There's always another play. There's always another option. And this is some of the wisdom that um, Clem gives him, which is eyes open, always looking for possibilities and opportunities. Right. And I really loved how they played Cassian learning about Bix's situation when he's talking to Pelg and he's like, oh yeah, we're going to sell the place. And he's like, where's Bix? And he doesn't light his hair on fire. He doesn't get all, uh, what was those uh, series of movies with, um, oh, that one actor, you know, that one, that one movie with that one guy, but there's a whole series of movies (laughs) of, um, of, uh, like dads rescuing their daughters, you know, who've been taken by taken. That's it. And there's um, there's multiple variations on on the, that theme. Cassian doesn't do that. He's just like, I'm going to go get Bix, and he goes and he gets Bix, and he takes on right? that garrison. He's ready to go. <laughs> he kills one Death Trooper. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> it's actually kind of the best time to do this. 
because right mm-hmm. now everybody's oh, totally. on the funeral. And so he didn't really have to take out a whole garrison. He kind of only had to take out a few people, it seemed like. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I think he killed two guys, right? Because he shot that one guy point blank in the chest. Yeah. That was cold. Absolutely ice cold, Cassian. Ice cold. Um, but I just love the um, unflinching determination that Cassian shows there. He's like, where's Bix? Oh, I'm going to go get her. Right? Yeah. Is that crazy? He's not mad. He's not- It's like a casual thing of I'll go pick up my, I'll go pick up my friend. <laughs> just... And but I love that about their character types is that there's never not another move to make. And if you're gonna foment rebel uh, rebellion and create a revolution and a you know the uh, a force of people and to do these kinds of things that they've got to do, you've got to be that kind of person who can always see the next move, even when you don't, when when all the odds are stacked against you. Right. Exactly. And this was a really great scene. I mean, I liked how Bix was sort of just closing her eyes and basking in freedom mm, at the end. Mm-hmm, mm, uh, yeah. r- really just excellent work. I mean, she was not very much in this episode, but where she was, she did a good job. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to talk about was just the quality of action in the funeral scene. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the stormtrooper getting yeeted out of the tower. <laughs> How fun was that? Yeah, everybody. Well, I think there's a lot of memes flying around right now of that. <laughs> it's probably like the the stormtrooper is Book of Boba Fett and the guy up top <laughs> is Andor. Ooh, shots fired. <laughs> uh, Tony Gilroy up top and then uh, uh, John Favreau as the stormtrooper. There you go. There you go. I like it. I like it. All right. We, Listen, we all if you... If you well, I'll, I'll I'll throw one more thing out, which is is not not as comical, but a little bit more serious. Like if you're writing a Star Wars script right now, and I think we we said this joked about this in a previous podcast, burn your scripts and start over, yeah, and go talk to Tony Gilroy and watch this series front to back, back to front, a uh, dozen times. I mean, you can change your underpants first. You don't have to do it yeah, right away. <laughs> yeah, clean yourself up first, and then get to work. And it doesn't mean that you have to go all dark and get all noir on it and that kind of stuff. You know, you know, we could do some lightsabers, we could do some force stuff, but look at the quality of the script and look at the quality of the action and look at the quality of the actors and stop taking the cheap way out and start doing the work. Start doing the work of dramatic action and, and telling compelling stories and move characters in compelling ways. This is a marker now, and I think this whole series recontextualizes everything and sets a new bar that I'm going to be judging a lot of stuff by. It reminds me kind of of the trends in video games lately, where video games for a while were moving in this direction of everything has to be open world. Everything Mm. has to be, you can follow any path you want, and we're going to give you a million objectives, and you're going to have a million hours of things to do. And recently, I've seen a lot of people going like, can you just give me like a compelling story that I could play front to back? Mm. Mm-hmm. Can you just tell me a straightforward story that makes me feel something? And mm. that's what Andor is to me. It's somebody stopping trying to do the Game of Thrones late season shock value thing mm-hmm. and somebody telling me a story that makes me care about characters again. Mm-hmm. And that is so great to see. And I just want more of this. Yeah. 100%. Where were we? Well, I think we've talked about the funeral enough. Yeah. We've got one more scene, and that is Cassian and Luthen on the ship. Mm-hmm. 
Where are we at with this, David? What do you think? I I was you in this scene when it went to black and the credits started rolling. I was like, uh, wait, what? Uh, uh, I'm not ready. No, like 2024 <laughs> is too far away. But it ended on a perfect note in a perfect place um, with the perfect set of, of conditions. The all, all the questions are answered. It took me a while to process what I saw because it was so subtle, because it was so well done, because the acting and the delivery was so just uh, I want to say gentle, like it just it wasn't it wasn't nuanced. crazy. It was new, yeah, that's it. Nuanced. It was so perfectly nuanced. I was like, I was like, Cassian, why aren't why aren't you drawing down on Luthen? Like, where's you know why is your gun not pointed at him? And then like Luthen picks down, you know, looks down and picks up his gun. I was like, oh shit. And then the way that Cassian delivers that line, or that you know Diego Luna delivers Cassian's line there, which is like, kill me or take me in. I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. It really took me like a day or so of processing to like get the full impact of that. Right. I think, I mean, the point of his statement that way was, this is my life now. I don't have Mm -hmm. anything else. You can either let me fight for this or I'm dead anyway. Yeah. And I'm going to be running because the Empire is going to be after me like even even more now. Yeah. My mom's dead. My dad's dead. Uh, my friends are safe and they're off planet. I've got nothing left. So right. yeah, this is it. My loose ends are tied. I will say, I saw people calling this a cliffhanger. And I was like, if you think that's a cliffhanger, you, are, you did not watch this show. No, because it's not a cliffhanger. Luthen's smile told you more than any dialogue could have. Mm-hmm. He was so happy. He was so happy. I mean, just... Absolutely perfect. And it wasn't the fake smile that he does in his shop. This was mm-hmm. a genuine like smirk where he's like, oh, I finally did it. I got another hero. You know, he says that line uh, earlier on uh, in an earlier episode. Have you ever seen a weapon or no one's ever made a weapon that hasn't been used? Cassian is now his weapon. Yeah. Right. And he's been, he's been honed and sharpened. He was there in a raw form. And now all everything has been burned away and he's whittled into this very sharp point and he's ready to be used by Luthen. I mean, like Luthen with a knife in a back alley. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just giving up, <laughs> right? Like that's it. Yeah. I mean, I don't first of all, we know from Rogue One he's not dead. But second, even if we didn't know about Rogue One, I couldn't imagine Luthen killing him after that. I mean, that was just the moment that he had been waiting for here. I think the reason that Luthen needed to kill him was, yeah. he, I got this guy running out there with no cause and no motivations, uh, you know, who's a wild card, unpredictable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I already have Saw. That's enough wild card for me. So we, can, we can't have Cassian running around, too. Uh, and at least Saw has the right motivations, even if his actions are a wild card. But as soon as Cassian said, I'm your tool now, he's ready mm-hmm. to use him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, it, that's a good point, because... Luthen was terrified because Cassian had been on the Fondor. He had seen his face. He he knows his. He doesn't may, maybe necessarily know about the antique shop, but he's got more than enough information to, to place him. So uh, he needed to tie up that loose end. Luthen did, but then yeah, after he sees what Cassian did, and he didn't do that much in this. Right? He like he said a few things in emotion. That's how effective this guy is. That's how deadly. 
Cassian is, right? Like forget that he can quick draw on a on a death trooper and 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 win that gunfight. The fact that he can put this many people into motion in such a way that causes this kind of effect, like that is a powerful powerful tool. You know, I will say this, as much as I gave Alan Supham Wall shit earlier, <laughs> yeah. I am often more interested in the other characters than I am in Cassian. Mm-hmm. And that's because Cassian sort of, I think he's the main character because things revolve around him, not because he's the one that necessarily would have been the most interesting to follow, because I kind of almost feel like it would have been more interesting to follow Luthen. But the way that Cassian's arc was brought together in this episode made him a more compelling character for me. I mean, yeah. this this really rounded out Cassian as a character. It gave us a dimensionality, too. I thought one of the things that was interesting, and we mentioned this before in a previous podcast, is this is a show that has given us characters, shown us characters having serious doubts, crippling doubts. Luthen, Cassian, Mon Mothma, like, to the point of, like, uh, my knees are about to buckle and I'm going to fall on the floor and just be a, a, a quivering, you know, uh, a ball of fear uh, kind of, of doubt. And other shows about heroes, you know, they, they may have a moment of crisis, but intellectually they sort of shrug it off and we move on with the story. And in this, sig in this episode, we see Cassian with his regrets about, you know, Marva. We see all the people giving Cassian love because, you know, they're sorry that his, his mother died. We hear Clem's voice. He is a whole and complete person by the end of this. And that is such a joy of a journey to, to watch the evolution of this character. And he hardly, how many lines of dialogue did he have over this whole sequence, over this whole series? Not like relatively small, being the fact that his name is the Marquis, right? That's what I'm saying is he was the center of everything, but he really didn't have a lot of uh, time. And that's a bold choice as a showrunner. That's a yeah. bold choice. That is a confident choice. And I'm yeah. really glad that that he did it this way. I've read a book before that it was in a in a series where there was a main character, and mm -hmm. in one of the books they almost entirely cut out the main character. Mm -hmm. And I thought that that was a really bold choice. And I feel like that was almost what they did here. He's right. like, let's develop Cassian without having him be on screen <laughs> or without having him deliver any monologues or things like that. Well, I'm looking for. We can talk about it when we do our season wrap up about what we think is going to happen in in uh, season two. I, I'm down for whatever. I don't need more Cassian or less Cassian, but as long as this kind of uh, writing and action is moving forward on all fronts, I'm, I'm going to be happy. Very cool. Well, that about wraps up our uh, episode recap. Let's, um, <clears throat> we've got about six emails. Maybe we should uh, bump these to our season wrap. I think so. I think that it's time. Peter, Joseph, Eric, uh, Aaron, and Caroline, uh, we, uh, we got your emails. Thank you so much. We love all your comments, and we're going to put them all into our season wrap because we're running so long on this. We're still recovering from Thanksgiving, and John's going about to have a baby and stuff. So we're going uh, to bump these emails over into the next uh, episode. So everybody else, please make sure you write in your final season takes right away. <laughs> the moment you hear this uh, podcast, right in. I will be monitoring and I will make sure that these get cut and paste into our outline. Um, John, what other program reminders do we need to uh, touch base on? 
Yeah, again, we have the White Lotus every Wednesday coming out. We have another three episodes, so stay tuned for that. We've got more Star Wars next month. We have uh, Tales of the Jedi we're going to be putting out at some point. Mm-hmm. On the on the Patreon, we have Second Breakfast, which is our off-the-clock podcast. That's where we talk about what we're not covering, but what we're watching, playing, reading, etc. We had a really fun time talking our, our on our first one, so I'm really looking forward to our December uh, Patreon um, Second Breakfast. Yeah, I mean, I talked about Rebels on it, and I'm sure that I'm going to do that again in the December one. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll be, even be on Clone Wars by then, so that's pretty exciting. Cool. And then towards the end of December, we're going to have Silmarillion stories. We're going to be reading the Valaquenta, which is the, just the second reading in the Silmarillion. You've got a whole month to catch up if you want to. Uh, we're always happy to talk Tolkien on this channel. Next year, we're going to be covering more Star Wars shows, so don't unsubscribe from these, this feed if you're only here for Star Wars. We're Definitely going to be be doing Ahsoka. We might do something for Mandalorian, for the Bad Batch, for so we have some things in the works. Uh, stay put, stay tuned in this feed if you want more Star Wars. Fingers crossed, we're going to have some Wheel of Time news before too long as well because we're really itching to cover that. And I think we're we're tracking a few other shows that are out there on the far edge of our radar. So um, definitely stay tuned when we have more specific information and release dates for things uh, that we think we might want to cover. We will make sure you guys know. Absolutely. On that note, if you want our podcast early and ad-free, you can subscribe to our Patreon for as little as $3 a month. I want to give a special shout out to Samartian, our lore master patron. That's our top tier right there. That's our top tier. This is a real lore master here. Uh, thank you so much for your support. It really helps us keep this podcast going and, and all the uh, other justifying to our partners who, uh, being away yeah. from, uh, from the family uh, <laughs> for a few hours. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, uh, it's it's been great covering Andor with you, David. I hope people will come back for the season wrap up, uh, yeah. especially because we have new voices on it, and you'll hear some different perspectives. Yeah, and including Maester Anthony from the uh, Double Dragon and Electric Bukaloo. I know he's uh, he emailed us pretty excited, saying, "Guys, like I got stuff to talk about." So I know I'm excited to hear what he has to say. Yeah, absolutely, John. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Andor at thelorehounds.com if you have feedback, and we'll see you next week. The Andor Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to andor at thelorehounds.com. For all Lorehounds content, subscribe to our Firehose feed, The Lorehounds, on your podcast app of choice. To get ad-free versions of this and all other Lorehounds podcasts, subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Thanks for listening. 